Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 43, January 10th to January 16th, 1862. Last week, we talked about the Romney Expedition, which for our purposes this week is still going on, so just keep that in mind. We also went out to Missouri and checked out some of the failed attempts by Price to recruit more State Guard units and raid Union positions. We also got to take a look at the thorn that was in the side of Lincoln in the Confederate fortifications, bottling up river traffic on the Potomac there just outside Washington. This week, I want to take a more in-depth look at Edwin Stanton and Samuel Colt. But first, we will head out to eastern Kentucky and fight the battle that made a president. Just as a quick announcement before we get into that, though, uh, we do have a Patreon episode coming out here. We're doing another memoir review. This one is going to be All for the Union, which is written by Elisha Hunt Rhodes. And this is another one of the more famous memoirs. It's a little bit different. It's done in a diary format, so you kind of get the play-by-play with Rhodes. Uh, It's also the companion to the famous miniseries The Civil War from Ed Burns. So we are going to post that one shortly, so if you're interested, make sure to be on the lookout for that. If you will recall, Kentucky had become exactly what the state was trying to avoid, the middle ground in a tug of war. Control over the bluegrass state was a high priority for both North and South. Lincoln was quoted to having said, I hope God's on our side, but I must have Kentucky. If Kentucky fell to the South, it could be a domino that would topple other border states, such as Missouri and even Maryland. Let's head to eastern Kentucky and remember the last time we were out there, the Union had easily defeated the poorly supplied Confederates at Ivy Mountain. Troops under the command of Bull Nelson had driven them back from their incursions across the Big Sandy River. While the Confederates were not done dreaming of controlling eastern Kentucky, After all, there was a shared border between the states that would allow for the entrance of rebel troops. It is debatable as to whether eastern Kentucky was worth taking, that region being less cultivated and more wilderness than anything else. It is the area that sprouts the Hatfields and the McCoys, their feud starting possibly over disagreements regarding service during the Civil War. That may be another subject for another day, though. Regardless, having a foothold in this region could lead to future conquest. A new leader would take over Confederate regiments, as well as the remnants of the Kentucky unit that had encountered Nelson. His name was Humphrey Marshall, and his new army was dubbed the Army of Southwestern Virginia, appropriately so. Marshall had attended West Point, but resigned his commission to become a lawyer. 
the Kentucky native had still served as a volunteer in the war with Mexico. Prior to the Civil War, he had actually served as a foreign dignitary. After the campaign resulting in Middle Creek, Marshall would see his military career sputter out. He would go on to represent Kentucky in the Confederate Congress. In 1862, that very same Congress was going to show that their plans often hit less than the mark. Tharmy was expected to gather additional recruits and supplies after they moved into Kentucky from Virginia. This would prove better on paper than an execution, as we will see. It's a very similar plan that is going to be offered up for the potential invasion of New Mexico, so stay tuned for that. Facing off against Marshall would be a Union Brigade sent by Don Carlos Buell, but under the command of James Garfield. Now, if that name sounds familiar, and I really hope that it should, it's because James Garfield is on our list of presidents. Buell actually selected a different officer for the task, giving the offer of command to William Hazen. William Babcock Hazen was actually a soldier prior to the war, unlike Garfield. Uh, Hazen does not want this command for several reasons. Number one, it is not high in terms of potential career advancement. Uh, it's in sort of in a backwater, as we mentioned, eastern Kentucky, so he declines. Now, the reason why the Battle of Middle Creek is known as the battle that made a president was that Garfield would gain notoriety as a result. Garfield, the former principal from Ohio, would command a force that included units from Ohio and Kentucky, with a late addition of cavalry from western Virginia. His request for artillery was denied by Buell, which proved to be fortunate, speaking to the difficulty of terrain in eastern Kentucky. Garfield will show his ability for command. At one point, he chastises his own Ohio regiment when the Union troops forage for food, taking heavily from the local populace. He would famously lecture his men as a former education professional is wont to do. Garfield's force would move out to try to cut off Humphrey with one regiment and engage the rest of the Confederates with his main force. The rebels were camped at a place called Hager Hill. Garfield is impatient and wants to go after Marshall's army. The Union troops would actually demonstrate against the enemy, Garfield excitedly moving his troops to various places and ultimately doing very little except forcing Confederate pickets to withdraw. Humphrey would hold a council of war, faced with the threat posed by the Union Brigade. The Confederates had not had a good time invading Kentucky, so it was deemed necessary to withdraw back into Virginia. Supplies were low, as was the morale. There was no great flocking to the southern banner, and to top it all off, 
Not even their commanding officer wanted to be there. Garfield would not let the rebels off the hook that easily, although his moving of his forces meant that many of them were tired, so he was only able to pursue the enemy with 1,500 of his closer to 3,000-man army. Still, the encroaching Southerners would become the hunted. Humphrey would set up a defensive position at a place called Middle Creek. Despite his eagerness to find safer territory, he realizes he will have to face the Yankees. Middle Creek is actually a good position, showing that Marshall at least had a good military mind. It is worth mentioning again that the Army of Southwestern Virginia was not very well supplied. Food rations were low, and it was cold in January, having come over the mountains into Kentucky with inadequate winter clothing. Many of the Virginia and Kentucky regiments did not have shoes or overcoats to protect them. These troops numbered some 3,000, but as far as the able-bodied men, it's probably somewhere around 2,000. The rebels would try to set up a trap for Garfield's men, but Garfield, per his leadership capability, was able to flesh out an ambush attempt by dismounting Confederate cavalry. He deployed his own cavalry to draw enemy fire before moving his infantry into place. The infantry units would advance on the Confederates and push them back from their positions and up high ground behind them. In fact, they were pushed to the highest point on a ridgeline. The high ground was chosen well by the commanding rebel officer. Humphrey, unlike Garfield, does have artillery, but an example for how laughable the supply of the rebels was, many of the projectiles were duds and did no effect on the Union forces. Fighting in a wooded environment erupted with men on both sides, taking cover behind trees and rocks. I know we have the common brother-against-brother trope, but we have federally aligned Kentucky infantry engaging Confederate Kentucky troops. Speaking of the Union Kentucky Infantry, these men were almost mistaken for Confederates by one of Garfield's Ohio units. Garfield was able to ensure there were no friendly fire incidents and continued the attack. The last of the Union regiments would arrive before nightfall, if you remember Garfield had scattered his forces and sent for more men to join him. This made the situation difficult for the Southerners. Ultimately, the position had to be abandoned. There was fear of mass desertion, especially if you take into consideration that they were still not resupplied. Under the cover of darkness, the Confederates would burn heavier supplies and wagons to escape. Union cavalry would pursue for a couple of miles, but eventually the rebels would withdraw back into Virginia. Casualties were 27 for the Union and 65 for the Confederates. It was another much-needed morale boost for the Union cause. As an example to the propaganda machine of the press, it was listed as the largest Union victory so far in the war. Middle Creek would soon be overshadowed by larger victories soon to come in 1862, it would propel the star of Garfield, gaining him some fame. 
As a result, he would actually be promoted to Brigadier General. This battlefield fame, partially earned by the victory at Middle Creek, and we might add helped out by the exaggerated claims, would help Garfield be elected to Congress, starting the political career that would take him eventually to the White House. If we combine this action with Mill Springs, which is right around the corner, it will end the potential for the Confederates to take Eastern Kentucky. The supply issue would prevent them from moving into the Bluegrass State from their bases in friendlier Virginia. I want to take some time to discuss the passing of an individual already mentioned, although briefly, who does affect our story and arguably the story of America. It is this week in 1862 that we see the death of Samuel Colt. His story, though, is an interesting piece of history. Certainly, it is one of perseverance and luck that regardless of how you feel about firearms, you can't help but admire. Colt had been born in Connecticut in 1814. From an early age, he showed an interest in things mechanical, gaining inspiration from his father's mill in Massachusetts. It is also said that he traveled for a time on a vessel with a wheel. The wheel and how it worked was also part of the eventual inspiration for his revolving firearm. It is during Colt's early years he traveled as an entertainer using nitrous oxide or laughing gas. Valuable skills as a salesman and a promoter would be gained from his experience, which will play out later in life. In 1836, Colt would begin manufacturing a revolving pistol known as the Patterson Model. This was named so after their initial plant, located in Patterson, New Jersey. Besides, the Patterson Model Colt also produced holsters and rifles, all with his revolving innovation in mind. It may surprise you to know that this first attempt ended in failure. The U.S. government was not interested in the purchase of these weapons. Innovation could lead to malfunction, and although there was an increased rate of fire with these revolving weapons, as compared to our single-shot weapons, for instance, there was at least a degree of reliability with the weapons that the government already used. So, these new contraptions that might prove to be ineffectual was not something that interested them, at least at first. Sales were sporadic. Frontier Life would see the value in a weapon with multiple shots, though. Some were purchased for the use in the Wars of Texas Independence, as well as the Seminole War. These sales weren't on the scale that was necessary to continue operations. Forced to close down the Patterson plant, Colt would shift focus toward other pursuits. Actually, he was interested in development of a sea mine, which put him into contact with Samuel Morse, another innovator of the day. This was because Colt needed a waterproof cable for purposes of having electricity run underwater, borrowed from an earlier design by Morse. Morse, in case you didn't pick up on it, is the inventor of the telegraph. This is where Morse code comes from, although the code that Morse came up with actually had to be tweaked a little bit to get a final product. It is still used in certain situations today. 
in every great story, there's a little bit of luck or opportunism involved. For the case of Colt, the luck would contain the election to the presidency of James K. Polk. The reason being, Polk was an expansionist. Wars with Mexico, as we have already mentioned, perhaps even Great Britain, were on the horizon, and these would require the use of firearms, for which someone who is a firearm manufacturer would be good news. Colt received a fortunate visit by one Samuel Walker. Walker was going to serve in the cavalry for the U.S. Army after having served as a Texas Ranger. The Texas Rangers had been around since 1823 when Stephen F. Austin employed a handful of men to protect homesteaders. Walker had actually been under the command of Jack Hayes, one of the more famous early Texas Rangers. Hayes and Walker would be joined by Ben McCullough, who we know now as the victor of Wilson's Creek. Walker would actually be killed during the war with Mexico. Before departing for war, his meeting with Colt would put his manufacturing plant on the map. He helped to improve on the original five-shot design of the Patterson revolver, placing a large order for the Walker Colt. This would allow Colt to get things up and running, eventually gaining notoriety for his revolvers. At one point, his plant would become the largest in the world. By 1855, 150 would be produced daily using innovative manufacturing techniques like assembly line work and interchangeable parts. At the outbreak of the Civil War, Colt would shift to exclusively only supplying the Union Army with weapons. He would die a wealthy man in January of 1862 after having suffered from chronic rheumatism. The Colt 45 Peacemaker would become standard issue in the U.S. Army until 1892. Today, the Colt Manufacturing Company has produced 30 million pistols. It is this week in 1862 that Edwin Stanton would take over as the Secretary of War. I know we already did a little introduction for Stanton, but I would like to go a little bit more in depth, because I think... One, it was fairly short. Two, it was not his time to shine as the Secretary of War. And three, as mentioned before, it is in fact my podcast, and I want to talk about Edwin Stanton, which are words the average person does not usually say, if you really think about it. Anywho, Stanton, like Colt, was born in 1814, although Edwin McMaster Stanton was born in Steubenville, Ohio. He had relatively humble beginnings, having to work in a bookshop to help support his family. Stanton did pass the bar and eventually moved to Washington, where he was involved in high-profile cases, as mentioned the famous Daniel Sickles trial. Stanton was not an imposing figure. He was smaller in stature and suffered from chronic asthma, but he would make waves in the nation's capital. Stanton is usually described as power-hungry and is often disliked by contemporaries. Grant mentions how he is more eager to displease than anything else. As a result of Buchanan's inactivity to the secession of several states, some members of his cabinet resigned. Stanton would be the replacement for the Attorney General. 
Having been sympathetic originally to the Southern cause, Stanton would actually become more hardline during the Fort Sumter situation. In fact, if troops were withdrawn, he was going to potentially resign. Instead, as we know, Anderson remained, and the firing on Fort Sumter kicked off the Civil War. Simon Cameron would pull in Stan to become a legal advisor during his time as Secretary of War. Stan was necessary because the War Department, early in the conflict, received a lot of criticism. States were told they needed to buy supplies, and the federal government would reimburse them. But this resulted as sometimes worthless items being sold for higher prices. Cameron, of course, as you recall, was accused of corruption as well. We had that incident where, in the Romney expedition, Jackson gets to Hancock and tears up some railroad track. Well, it was implied that Cameron allowed for the B&O track to be destroyed because it damaged one of his competitors. The real nail in the coffin for Cameron came when he proposed to arm former slaves, which was actually recommended by Stanton. Cameron would resign, leaving an empty seat. Stanton was all too happy to fill it. Now, I do not want to go over a full account of Stanton's time in the War Department. We have already mentioned the increase in intelligence gathering and work against potential Southern sympathizers. Stanton is able to convince Lincoln to transfer power in terms of these arrests from Seward to himself. In fact, there was a committee whose goal it was to discover those individuals, and Stanton actually fires four on their list from the War Department. He would also work closely with Benjamin Wade, who we know is on the Joint Committee on the Conduct of War. This committee wants to remove McClellan, mind you, so he starts early to align himself with those individuals. Here we have the arrest of Charles Stone, which is part of the politics at work. Now, we mentioned that a lot of people don't like Edwin Stanton. A lot of his contemporaries don't like him. And that's sort of because he is self-serving. And this is a great example. He aligns himself with the radical Republicans because that's the way the wind is blowing. Now, if there was a Democrat in office, uh, like, say, Buchanan, I'm sure at that point Stanton was a Democrat, but not so during the Lincoln administration. Early on, he does have a good relationship with McClellan, but that actually starts to deteriorate. And one often sort of wonders, yes, McClellan is a frustrating figure and probably not the best to work with, but... When you're sitting in the same camp as these other radical Republicans, and they don't like the commander of the army because he is in fact a Democrat, and it's seen as light-handedness when it comes to these secessionists, it sort of makes you wonder, do you really not like working with McClellan, or is he just someone to get out of the way to appease your new friends? That's just food for thought. Stanton would change the way in which promotions were granted, changing to those based off of merit, and not just those loyal to the administration. He would also ban foreign contracts for war material, instead turning to manufacturing inside the country. Increased communication systems, including telegraph lines, which we mentioned were important to the war effort, would also be instituted under Stanton. 
and that might be just enough for Edwin Stanton for now, although he will play a big role, and we will continue to acknowledge that as we move forward. This is a good place to pause. We have had action in Kentucky and Middle Creek, which combined with next week will secure the eastern part of the state, at least until later in 1862 when Braxton Bragg shows up. We talked about Samuel Colt, as well as gave what I think is a better introduction to Edwin Stanton. Next week, we have the Battle of Mill Springs, which we have alluded to already. We will also head back over to New Mexico and check in there, setting up another Texas invasion. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show would be greatly appreciated. Feedback is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening and have a great week.